Welcome to Messages and More, a podcast channel of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. This channel plays our weekly sermons and other content relevant to our church community. Amen, and thank you, worship team, again, and good morning. As the kids take off for Sunday school, thank you for joining us. If you weren't here earlier when I introduced myself, I am Bruce Drugsma. I am the senior pastor here. And we are in a, a study of the book of Colossians, and we are looking at this, this letter that Paul wrote. And last week, we kind of looked at some of the context, some of the history. We were looking at a letter that Paul wrote to a church that he didn't start. Uh, he's writing it with his co-worker in ministry, Timothy, this, this letter to this church. And this church in a community uh, in decline, where the city of Colossae is losing its influence, it's losing its impact, and the church stands there with the decision to make. Do we fade away into irrelevancy with our community, or do we rise up? And we, we talked about that last week, being a church on the rise, that as, as things around can feel like they're drifting away, we as believers have an opportunity to step into the truth of who God is. And so... Uh, we looked at that and kind of talked about that, and as a reminder, Paul is writing this with Timothy, because Paul is in prison, uh, so Timothy had a role in this, they have a relationship, that's going to come up again this morning, but that's, but that's where, where we started last week, and that section ended with Paul reminding them that they had been rescued out of a kingdom of darkness and brought into the light of God, and that section ended with him putting that before them. Remember who you are. Remember the firm foundation you stand on. Remember that you were called out of this darkness into a new kingdom. And we're going to step a little further into Paul's letter this morning and look at some of the challenges of belief that were facing them. And, and this series, we've, we've titled it, This We Believe. And one of the things that I hope you get out of this series is the idea that as followers of Jesus, belief is more than a checklist. We, we, we have this desire, I think, especially in evangelical Christianity, we have this desire to have the right answer, and that is a noble desire. But don't let it just be a checklist. Our faith is simply this, I know this is right, I know this is right, I know this is right. It has to impact who we are. It has to impact our heart and how we believe. And so this we believe is not just saying these are the right answers. It's saying this is what we believe with our heart, and it impacts how we live every day. This we believe. And last week, uh, I threw up a quote from, from a, a, a church historian at Trinity that said, what we believe about God affects how we live. That was kind of the, the statement that grounded what we talked about last week. And this week, I'm going to throw up um, a, a quote from Pastor Mike Erie that says this, good theology cannot save us, but bad theology can harm us. And, and, and I want us to think about what he's saying here, because what, what Pastor Mike Erie is saying is having all the right knowledge doesn't make you a Christian any more than living in a garage makes you a car. We can have all of the right knowledge and information, but that isn't what saves us. A relationship with Christ is what saves us, but... Why is it still important to study who God is, which is what theology is? If you don't know what that word is, that's what it means, knowing about God, uh, the study of God. Why, is, why can it still harm us? Because back to the quote we had last week, because what we think about God affects how we live. If we think God is just 
out there to do what we want, how that will affect how we live and how we interact with God. And this is kind of the issue that is before Colossae. Is Paul is looking at him saying, hey, you have some bad theology. You have some things in your way that can harm you. And I want you to avoid these pitfalls, these common pitfalls. Another example from James chapter two, verse 19. James write this, you believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Getting at the same idea from scripture that right belief isn't what saves us, right? Right belief isn't the thing that leads to salvation. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we cannot assume that simply having the correct view on a given issue is enough. But it can harm us if we have the wrong view, and and which is why it's so important. We have that relationship with Jesus, which saves us, and then we need to push into knowing him more. And we talked last week a little bit about this corkscrew idea that as I get to know more of who God is, the same way it is with any other significant relationship in your life, as you get to know more, you step further in, which gives you the opportunity to know more, which makes you step further in. And this is what we are called to do as followers of Jesus is it's a lifelong process of following God and learning more about who he is and what he's done for us. And as we learn more, we step in further. And I'm really glad that when I first came to faith, God didn't give me a list of all the things that were wrong with me. Can you you imagine how demoralizing that would have been? My list would have been really long. I have a lot of problems. And instead, through the Holy Spirit, through the conviction in my life, I keep stepping further in and God keeps refining me and keeps on uh, correcting me and changing me more and more into his image. And that's what we, we want to do. And another way that I think we can all relate to this is, uh, and there's a fancy name for it, I'm going to throw it out there. It's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. I'm sure this is something most of you have heard of. Um, The Dunning-Kruger effect is the idea that the more we think we know about a complex subject, the more danger we can get ourselves into. What does that that mean? Let me give you some examples. I'll give you an example from my own life. A couple of years ago, I started getting into mountain biking because my kids were getting into mountain biking. And so I went out and got a mountain bike. And, And Throughout the, that first summer, I spent a lot of time with the kids following them on the mountain bike trails, which following them on the mountain bike trails gave me this initial experience of what mountain biking was like. And it's a complex activity. But this initial experience got me over the hump of, hey, I feel some competence in this complicated new area. And then the kids went to school and it was a beautiful fall day and I got my mountain bike out and I went to the mountain bike course by myself for the first time and I'm an expert now. I'm ready to let it rip. You can tell where this is going. (laughs) And my tires were a little low, but I figured that's not a huge deal. That's not a significant problem. I'm gonna do this easy loop, loop back to the car. And then if it's a problem, I can air up my tires. I made it to the first curve. I went over the handlebars and, and destroyed my tire. Because what happened is my tire was so low that when I went around the corner, the tire folded over, the rim of the, 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 the wheel folded over and the rim of the wheel dug into the dirt and flipped me. And I had to do the walk of shame. My bike was non-functional. I had to carry it, walk of shame, backwards on the easy loop from the first turn covered in dirt, obviously what I had done. 
That's, that's the Dunning-Kruger effect. It's this idea that I have a little bit of knowledge and it just gets me in more trouble because I think I know everything. It's a complicated subject, mountain biking. Another way to think of the Dunning-Kruger effect is that 80%, this is a stat, 80% of drivers think they are better than average. That doesn't work. You can't, that, you know, and I'm speaking to some people in this room that are now elbowing the person next to them. 80% of us cannot be better than average. That just isn't how averages work. I also read a statistic that 90% of pastors think that their public speaking ability is better than average. It doesn't work that way. But we get a little bit of knowledge and we can get into deep trouble and that's kind of what this is all about. This idea that we get a little bit of knowledge and, and the gospel is simple to understand but God is bigger than us and complex and therefore takes time. And we can get into trouble when we make these assumptions where we think we have it figured out. I can put God in a little box and think I have him figured out and all of a sudden we can find ourselves like the Dunning-Kruger effect going over the handlebars. And so we take what we assume to be true of a complex subject and we move on. And that at times can get us into serious trouble. And that's the issue that was plaguing Colossians the people of Colossians, the church in Colossae, that's one of the issues that was facing them is here they were new believers who were coming out of a very Jewish history with a lot of history behind them, but kind of a nominal understanding of it. In name only is what nominal means. There was a lot of people at that time who were Jewish in name and custom, but not really pursuing God. And, and a lot of these new Greek-influenced people were coming into the church and coming to know Jesus, and they have this limited knowledge, and they see the, the, these assumptions that they make. They go, okay, I think I have this Jesus guy figured out, and they're, they're jumping over here and not realizing the danger that is putting them in, which is why Paul is writing this letter, and he's writing it to them in love, saying, hey, be careful over here. God is a big God, and you're making some assumptions that are putting you in a position a position where you can get into great harm. And I want you to be cautious here because knowing the truth about Jesus Christ is worth the effort. And so there's some stuff that I'll bring up today that for some of you, it might feel like, you know, maybe too academic or maybe too intense or maybe, you know, God, just, just keep it simple for us. And there's a level of, I would like to do that, but I also know this is really important and it's worth the effort, and that's kind of why we're doing this series. And so I think Paul's first point to the church in Colossae is he talks about who Jesus Christ is, and I think our first takeaway this morning is that Jesus Christ is truly God. And that sounds like to us a no-brainer, but this was earth-shattering news at that time. When Jesus showed up on earth, and, and even when people were looking for the Jewish Messiah, they weren't necessarily assuming that Messiah was God. If you read through the gospels, you see Jesus time and again doing things and the disciples are assuming that he's gonna take an earthly throne. They're waiting for him to become the next king to throw off the Roman oppression. They're looking for the next David. And he keeps on going, my kingdom is not of this world. And he starts to say things that get them wondering and pondering. So this is a, a relatively new idea. And so it's something that they need to hear in Colossae because they have, in some ways, a limited understanding of what the Messiah was. And that can get them in trouble when they start making some assumptions. 
And so Paul is addressing this. Jesus Christ is truly God, starting in verse 18 of chapter one. For the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. And this is a very theologically dense statement. There's a lot going on in here, and, and we, could, we could spend a lot of time just talking about what this means, but ultimately what Paul is getting at is, is this thing that we in the church hold to, that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. He is both, and, and both are needed. And so he's starting here with this idea that Jesus is truly God. He is fully, fully God. He's not apart from God. He's not a representation only of God. He is God. He is the image of the invisible God. And the Bible teaches us that that we cannot see God. Even when we talked about Moses, when Moses wanted to see God, God said, you can't handle all of me. I'm going to show you my goodness because if you were to see me in all of my glory, you would die. We see in John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. And so we get this, that he is the image of the invisible God. In Jesus Christ, we have this view of God, this view that we can handle, the image of the invisible God, because he is God. He is the image. But Jesus also goes on the firstborn over creation, and this is one that has gotten some people in trouble. They read firstborn and they think, therefore created of God, a creature of God, the first creation. And firstborn here doesn't mean created, it means rank. It's not necessarily in terms of time so much as in terms of authority. He is the firstborn. Um, Firstborn in terms of rank. He is leading creation. Why? Well, the passage goes on and tells us because he is the creator. Verse 16, for by him all things were created. And that's the ESV translation, which gets a little better in this case, that it starts with for him, for by him, excuse me, for by him all things were created, whereas the NIV says for in him all things. And it's a subtle difference, but it really gets at that idea that he was God is God, therefore was, is the creator. And it goes on, it says, of all things, including authorities and powers, which in today's day and age should give us a lot of hope. All authorities and powers in the world are created by him, and we should have hope when we look around and see a world in chaos and turmoil to know that God isn't up there wringing his hands going, oh, I wish that wasn't that way. God is the creator, and that gives him that authority. And we are tempted to see those in power that we disagree with as the other. We like to see them as over there, as outside. And this tells us as well that if he is the creator, then then all people everywhere are made in his image and therefore worthy of that respect, even when we vehemently disagree with what they stand for. They are still created in God's image. And so there's a, a, 
a double-sided sword to that understanding that if they are created by him, they have worth as that creation even when they do evil and despicable things. And there's a tension that we have to live in there that we have this hope that, that God is in control and God has authority and yet we don't have to fear and we can still love our enemies as Jesus calls us to. And it goes on that Jesus is timeless, boundless. He is before all things. If he is the creator, he existed before all things. And if Jesus is God, then he, has, he is rightfully supreme over all mankind. And therefore, especially for us as a church. And Paul goes at great lengths to point that out. He is the head of the church. And, and, and ultimately, he is our ultimate head. We don't ultimately follow a denomination. We don't ultimately follow a creed or a doctrinal statement or even a pastor, except that they honor God as their final authority. Because we as Christians follow Jesus Christ as our head, and these other things help us along the way, doctrinal statements and creeds and pastors and leaders, because we see that they follow God, but he is ultimately our head. And when we follow those other things, we affirm that they are under the authority of Christ. This is who Jesus is. Jesus is truly God. But Paul doesn't leave it there, and neither do we. We also have this, Jesus is truly human. Again, it's, it's a both and. They go hand in hand. And this can be hard for us to understand, mostly because you and I aren't capable of being two things at once. I can't be two things at once. I have many titles. I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a pastor, I'm a brother. But those, that's not what we're saying. It's not that Jesus has two titles. He is fully both things. He is truly both things. I am not two distinct persons in one, and Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And Paul will help us get there. Picking up in verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So all of God fully rests in Jesus Christ, but also Jesus Christ is fully humanity. And in that, we align with him. And our salvation depends on both aspects. To be saved, we need a, a fully God sacrifice. We need, we need a sacrifice worthy of paying the penalty for our sin that is outside of us. I cannot pay the penalty for my own sin, much less the sin for somebody else. So we need a fully God sacrifice, but at the same time, it needs to be a fully human sacrifice to be in the position to pay the penalty. And we need both aspects of God fully for it to work. Otherwise, it doesn't work. We needed a savior, an all-sufficient sacrifice who is fully God with the authority to pay and fully human with the ability if he were not fully human, he would not be qualified to stand in the gap for sinners. 
And if he were not fully God, then any redemption through him would not be able to bring about salvation. Picking up from Paul in verse 23, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. To Paul, this is foundational. This is foundational to our faith. We need both and we must hold on to both. And this is the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel is that we have a savior with not only the ability to afford to pay, but in position to pay. Imagine with me that you are driving recklessly and you get pulled over and you end up having to go to court and you're standing there in court and the judge pronounces sentence on you, $500, and you don't have $500. You have no ability to come up with $500 for reasons that are not important right now. But you stand there, and then the judge has the ability to commute the sentence, takes off their robe, and hands you or the clerk the $500 to pay the bill for you. That is the image we get here, that Jesus Christ not only has the ability as the judge to, 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 ha- to uh, call out the sentence, but he also has the ability to pay it on our behalf. We need both, and Paul is getting at this because these are some slippery slopes that the early church is gonna wrestle with for years and years and years, and Paul addresses this in a lot of his letters to a lot of churches. This was a rampant misunderstanding that either Jesus was only human and God bestowed on him some special stuff, or that he was only God and didn't have the physical characteristics of humanity. And Paul is again and again and again gonna address that he, he is both and we need both and this is foundational, but it's also easily misunderstood. That he is truly God and truly human. And therefore Jesus Christ is our model and our hope. Because we see a Jesus Christ who is fully God and fully man and able to pay the penalty for our sins, that is our model and our hope. It gives us hope. And Paul here will shift, and so will we, from focusing on who Jesus is and what he has done. There's now a call to action for the church in Colossae and for all believers everywhere. This example is Paul's ministry. He is pointing to himself how he has been influenced by this truth of who Jesus is. And while Paul, we talked about earlier, addressed himself as an apostle, as one with authority over this church, even though he's never been there and never met some of them, most of them, but he also acknowledges that he is one of them. He is a fellow believer with us. He is an under-shepherd. Paul isn't claiming the authority of Jesus. He's saying, I'm under Jesus as well. Just like you, I am pursuing God. Let us do this together. Verse 24. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. And we're going to go on, and and Paul's going to kind of get into a little bit more detail here, but I want to pause here because this is a really tricky verse because Paul says some stuff that I think is hard for us to understand. 
And thankfully, uh, if you read 1 Peter, Peter, in his letter to the Christians that he writes, makes this comment that Paul was hard for Peter to understand. So therefore, that should make us feel a little better, that it's not just us struggling to understand all that Paul was saying. Even Peter, another apostle, and the believers who were at the same time and place as Paul were struggling with what Paul was saying. And what he says here is, is kind of tricky. Because he says, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. What does that mean? I mean, it sounds at some level like what he's saying is, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, the affliction he went through wasn't enough. I have to suffer as well. And this verse has been abused that way where people have taken this idea that I need to afflict myself to to finish out what Jesus started on the cross. And that's not at all what Paul is getting at. What Paul is saying is that while we live in this broken world, suffering will continue. Paul isn't completing what Jesus did. He's saying what Jesus started on the cross in dying for humanity isn't gonna come to full fruition until later when he returns. And in the interim, there will continue to be suffering. And so we will suffer with him. Not in a way to fill up what Jesus has done, but just in a reality of the world we live in. We look around and we see a world that is broken and we all know that we will suffer. We can expect to suffer with and for Christ in this life. While we live in a broken world, we will suffer. Jesus himself says it. In this world, you will have trouble, he says. But he goes on, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And notice he says, I have overcome the world, not I with your help have overcome the world. We will suffer, and that's what Paul is getting at. What is still lacking for the sake of his body, which is the church. And now now he goes on. I've become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. And so Paul is pointing and saying that our hope is Jesus Christ and our model is Jesus Christ. How powerfully he contended for us, we are called to contend for others and we bring them a gospel of God's truth. We bring them Jesus. This need for a fully God, fully man sacrifice for our sins, that is what we bring. That is what we carry forward. And we don't carry forward, um, when we encounter suffering, that shouldn't stop us from moving forward. Quite the opposite, it should spur us on. We are called to share our hope in spite of our sufferings. We are called, like Paul, to look to Christ who suffered, but suffered so that he could reconcile people to himself. Jesus came and died on the cross in our behalf, not to not just to do it, but to reconcile a broken humanity. We were separated, as, as Paul wrote earlier, we were separated, we were alienated from God. And Jesus Christ shows up and is able to stand in that gap, not, not just to do it, but to reconcile. And that is our goal, to bring other people into reconciliation with God. And we do that with Christ as our model. 
and we look to the hope of the cross, which is not a hope in suffering, but a hope in reconciliation, that someday we will all stand before God, as Paul says, as mature believers, that we will stand there with others that we have walked along the journey of faith with. That is our goal. And we do not preach a message of faith in evangelical churches. We do not preach a message of faith in uh, creeds. We preach a message of Jesus Christ. As Paul says at the end of the section, to this end I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. As we see God moving in our lives, that should motivate us to bring that truth to others so that they can experience that freedom in Christ as well. And remember that Paul is sitting there writing this letter through Timothy. He's modeling it with Timothy. Timothy is writing this letter for Paul. They are in a discipling relationship. And I would bet that if Paul and Timothy had any sort of relationship like I have seen in our world, it wasn't one-sided. It wasn't Paul always speaking only to Timothy. It was a two-way street. And yes, Paul was discipling Timothy, but at times, Timothy was probably discipling Paul and looking at him going, Paul, I don't understand what you're saying here. Are you sure you meant that? And there's this back and forth. And there are times where I have been a disciple maker to somebody else, but there are other times that I need that disciple maker to turn and challenge me and push me. It's not a one-sided relationship. We need other people in our life to challenge us and to point us to Christ, to the level that Jesus Christ has done for us. We seek to disciple each other. Jesus Christ is our hope and our example, both in suffering and in the amount of effort we should put into our Christian faith. And this common vision, this common relationship should unite us as believers. Jesus Christ should unite us as believers. And I know I've said this a lot, but we should be unified with other believers, even those that we don't fully agree with. That the gospel tells us that that what it means to follow Jesus is to confess him as Lord and Savior of your life. And there are other things that we can disagree on and we need to be okay with that because our unity is a focus on who Jesus is and his role of reconciling humanity to himself. That is the ultimate thing we should be focused on. And unity does not mean unanimity, does not mean that we will agree on everything. Even in this church, even in my household, We don't agree on everything and that's okay as long as we agree on these foundational truths. It also doesn't mean uniformity. We shouldn't all look the same. We shouldn't all worship the same. We shouldn't all think exactly the same and dress exactly the same. That's not unity, but we are called still to be unified as believers. And we do that by keeping our focus on Christ and him crucified. And Paul is going to get to that same idea, and even though chapter 1 is ending, we're going to go a little bit into chapter 2 because I think he's completing a thought that ties this together. So chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
I tell you this, that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. And, and so here we have a lot of unifying language. He's talking about Laodicea, and remember, that's the, town, that's the next town over. And he wrote a letter to them too that we've lost, and he said, hey, read their letter, and then have them read your letter. And so if you're in Laodicea, you're reading this, hey, be encouraged in heart and united in love. And if you're in Colossians, you've heard the same thing. There's a call to unity in the church, that we should be unified as believers. And there's so much unifying language in this passage. It says that we are to be encouraged in heart. We should edify one another. We need to share what God is doing. There's a reason that if you're new to this church, you know, every once in a while you might see a white rose on our altar. And the reason is because somebody came to faith. So if you know somebody who came to faith, let us know so we can put a white rose on the altar so that other people can be encouraged. Or maybe you've come in and seen it and not known why it's there. That's why it's there. Be encouraged by that. We are called to encourage one another. Share what God is doing in your life with other people. Take that opportunity. And then it says to be united in love. It is hard to be in disunity with somebody that you care about. It's easy when we make them the other, when we make them less than, when that belief is wrong and therefore they deserve what they are getting. Whereas if we are unified with people, when we, even though we disagree with them, we can still love them as image bearers of God, as his children who, want, who God wants to be reconciled with, it is, hard, it is harder to hate them if we love them. It's impossible, I would argue. And we are called to be united in love because if we can separate ourselves from them, it is a lot easier to oppose them. And when we as Christians hear of the pain of persecution in the world to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, that unity of faith should bring us to seek their welfare, to pray for them, we are called to be unified in faith. We are called, one of the reasons that we regularly pray for our missions partners is because we are unified with them and we want to care for them well. We want to be involved in what they are doing. We want to, to be unified in heart. We want to encourage them. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but I, you know, you have that person that you feel like you have absolutely nothing in common with. Maybe you're on an airplane or maybe you're sitting at school or at work and you have this person that you just don't see eye to eye on anything with. And you're kind of struggling to find that relational common ground and then maybe you find out that they're a believer. Isn't it amazing how quickly that changes your perspective? You, you know you have a common core heart issue and then all of a sudden, those things that you saw as major annoyances or significant disagreements begin to change your heart. And all of a sudden, you see what they see a little differently. And that's what Paul is talking about here. We are called to be unified with other believers, especially those that we don't see eye to eye with. And I can imagine that the Laodiceans and the Colossians had things they disagreed on as we see one community rising in prominence and the other fading into obscurity. It would have been really easy to disassociate with each other and go, well, they're the uppity 
well-to-do people and we're over here, we've been going at this a lot longer. There were plenty of opportunities for disunity and Paul says, no, be unified. And so here we stand, hearing this challenge from Paul to be united in love. And one of the things that we are gonna do throughout this series is engage with some of these old creeds of our faith, these, these things that we talk about in the church that unify us as believers. And that, that's why we have them. And we, we can't lift them up to the same level of scripture, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed. These are all good things. The Evangelical Free Church Statement of Faith. These are all good things, but we don't elevate them to the level of, level of scripture. The reason we are looking at them at the end of our messages is because we want to see how scripture has guided them, not the other way around. But also they're a reminder to us of what we truly value as Christians, as believers, it helps us triage these differences. How do we know if it's a core issue that's worth dividing over? And how do we know when it's not? How do we know when it's a secondary issue? This is where things like statements of faith and creeds come in and help us triage. If we disagree on you know, a view of the end times or on a political uh, party support or whatever, how do we triage that? We do that by going, is this a core issue? And so the one we're gonna look at this morning is the one that the early church came up with early on, right around this idea of, is Jesus fully God and fully man? And what does that mean? And what are the implications for that? And so that was a conflict in the early church, like I said, and it went beyond the gospels until in the early church where they were having some significant disagreements on what it meant to be fully God and fully man. And so they sat down and they said, hey, we're gonna spell this out. This is what we believe. And what I think is kind of interesting is they sat down in a place called uh, Chalcedon. I think I'm saying that right. So it's the Chalcedonian definition, which is literally miles from Colossae. So the issue that Colossians is dealing with later on in history will be written in their same region of the world. The church will gather and say, hey, this is a core issue. And you're gonna see that the, the letter that Paul wrote what he says in there about Jesus being fully God and fully man is what this thing deals with. Now, later on in this series, we will read some of these together. The Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed are routinely read aloud in churches in, even to this day. This one's a little harder to read as a group, so I'm just gonna read it. But if you ever want to look at them more, we did put these in the back, both in larger font and smaller pocket-sized edition. Uh, for you to take home if you want to look at them and the ones we're going to look at in the, in the weeks to come. But here it is, the Chalcedonian definition of the Christian faith. Following the Holy Fathers, we all with one voice confess our Lord Jesus Christ to be one and the same Son, perfect in divinity and humanity, truly God and truly human, consisting of a rational soul and a body being of one substance with the Father in relation to his divinity and being of one substance with us in relation to his humanity and is like us in all things apart from sin. He was begotten of the Father before time in relation to his divinity and in these recent days he was born from the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, for us and for our salvation." In relation to the humanity, he is one and the same Christ, the Son, the Lord, the only begotten, who is to be acknowledged in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. 
This distinction of nature is in no way abolished on account of this union, but rather the characteristic property of each nature is preserved and concurring into one person and one substance, not as if Christ were parted or divided into two persons, but remains one and the same Son and only begotten God, Word, Lord, Jesus Christ, even as the prophets from the beginning spoke concerning him. And our Lord Jesus Christ instructed us, and the creed of the fathers handed down to us. And so I, I give you that. Some of you, that's going to go, oh, this is great. You know, maybe you're going to be like me when I got to college and read some of these things for the first time. I'm going to go, oh, this is so great. Some of you are kind of glassy-eyed and like, what did he just read? Either way is fine. If this helps you, please take it and be encouraged by it. But again, this is not scripture. But I think it's so great that here we have a thing that helps us look at other believers and go, you know what? I, I affirm this. And it, it, I affirm it in such a way that it affects how I live. And if you affirm this as well, then even though there are things we might disagree on, at least I know I can call you brother and sister in Christ because we have the same goal to reconcile through Jesus Christ, people to God. And therefore, even though we might disagree on methods or other things, we can be unified with other believers. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you that we do not have to go this alone. God, that we can, with other believers, celebrate who you are and what we stand for. God, help us to take the gospel to those who do not know it, to reconcile them to you. God, help us as well to push into these things that are hard for us to understand. God, not, not so that we can fill up a bank of knowledge, Lord, but so that we can know you personally and intimately. So God, help us as we pursue you to bring others along with us. God, so that we can someday stand before you with everyone else as believers who are mature in you at the end of time. I pray this in your name. Amen. Well, thank you, worship team, and thank you, Bruce, for that message. Uh, if you don't know me, I am Luke. <laughs> My throat. Excuse me. Sorry. There's a little... little waking up morning sickness. I'm Luke Job. I am the um, youth ministry director here at the church, and we have a couple of announcements today. One thing is we have the harvest party coming up this next Tuesday. No, no, not this Tuesday. The Tuesday afterwards. So what we need, we need volunteers and we need candy. So if you bring candy to the church, there's orange buckets in the back right over there. And then also we need volunteers because this is an amazing outreach opportunity to our community. Like, I came here a year ago, and I came to the Harvest Party, and I thought it was so amazing seeing a bunch of new faces from the community, and some people started coming to our church after the Harvest Party because we hosted it. So I encourage you guys to sign up for that because I'll be here, and a lot of other people will be here, and it's a great time to just connect in the community and also maybe share a little bit of Jesus with people with candy. So that's something coming up. Then, right after that, um, this Wednesday we are starting... Um, we already have Wednesday night, family night, Awana youth group, and adult Bible studies. Off of that, we have Gather to Grow groups, which is um, going to be hosted by Dennis Gilbertson. And it's going to be about discovering your spiritual gifts. So if you're interested in knowing what your spiritual gifts are and how you can use them in the church body, because spiritual gifts are all about helping other people 
It's not about you, it's about other people. If you're interested in learning more about that and what your spiritual gifts are, um, attend the class on Wednesday night. It's, I believe, in a Bible study up upstairs. If it's upstairs, not downstairs anymore, it's upstairs. Um, but Wednesday night, family night is awesome, and there's a bunch of other stuff on here, announcements-wise, and I'm going to pass it off to Bruce, and he'll close us with a little prayer, I think. Our benediction this morning is from Romans chapter 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to Messages and More, a ministry of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. To find out more, visit us online at wevfree.org.